All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So, uh, as we saw when we first started uh, in First Samuel one, uh, we have this account uh, written by people that we're not a hundred percent sure of. Um, looking back as historians, um, explaining how David came to the throne. Uh, and then uh, what's going to happen after that. And we're right at the crest of that hill, so to speak. Um, we've just made it barely into 2 Samuel. I'm going to turn this down just a little bit. And uh, it, for my own sake, I wanted to get a running start as we often do to, to this. And I started highlighting the main things that had been going on and I kept going back a chapter and, and back a chapter. So uh, I haven't timed this, but I think in about 90 seconds, um, we can hit a lot of points. This goes all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Saul has been after David, almost catches him, but then has to abandon the search when he hears that the Philistines are attacking on another front. You remember that? David's in the, the wilderness there uh, west of the Dead Sea. Chapter 24, after dealing with the Philistines for a while, Saul resumes the search for David. Of course, he's, David's ratted out by people wanting to curry Saul's favor. And then it just so happens that the call of nature leads him, that is Saul, into a cave where David and his men are hiding. David gets close enough uh, to kill Saul, but he spares Saul's life. And then Saul seems to make amends to David, but everyone knows he's not sincere. Chapter 25, we hear that Samuel dies. And then we have this story uh, where David is insulted by Nabal, Abigail's husband, um, we find that David is enraged. He intends to make Nabal pay. Uh, Abigail intervenes, as we know. But then later, uh, after Nabal wakes up from a long drunk from uh, the sheep shearing time, uh, he finds out how close he was to death, then actually has a heart attack, dies 10 days later. We know that he's kind of a figure of Saul, so to speak. So it kind of amplifies um, what happens in the next chapter where, once again, uh, David spares Saul's life. This time he sneaks into camp, steals a couple per personal items, and then confronts Saul with the fact that, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Again, Saul apologizes. Again, David notices that this is not sincere. So... In chapter 27, we find David saying, well, you know, I'm going to get away. He goes to the frontier lands in the southwestern corner of Judah, and this is the border of the, where the Philistines are. The Philistines basically kind of take him in, assuming that he's an outcast from the whole 12 tribes area, and uh, they kind of keep him there and... Uh, David has his own little uh, campment there at, um, uh, what is it, Ziklag, <laughs> fun to say. So in chapter 29, we have the Philistines gearing up for an army against Saul, and 
the leader of the Philistines says, okay, David, you've been camping out here. We expect you to join the battle. David says, okay, uh, I'm in. David takes his entourage up to meet the battle. And at that point, the Philistine military leaders say, wait a minute, this David, he's still pretty well liked over there in Israel. We don't want him in the battle. David heads back home only to find that the Amalekites have raided the city while he's away, burn it to the ground, and capture all the women and children and take them away. So this is what David finds when, he, uh, gets, when we get to uh, chapter 30. David sees what happens, and he's not having it. He goes, uh, captures uh, his family back from the Amalekites, routes them, and chapter 31 finds the final description of the big battle between the Philistines and Saul's army. This is where we find out the Philistines win. Um, Saul and his sons are killed. Their armor is stripped from them and put in a pagan temple. Their bodies are desecrated. They're decapitated. They're you know, put in a, in a place of shame there on the display. These people of Jabesh Gilead retrieve the bodies of Saul and his men and give them a proper burial. Now, I don't know how long that was, eight chapters or so. Second uh, Samuel, chapter 1, we know the story. David hears of the death of Saul from this Amalekite opportunist who, uh, he's not a Philistine, and so he wasn't really like official enemy, uh, but he wasn't of the 12 tribes. So he's kind of a sojourner, kind of playing the middle ground. And, of course, we know that he happens upon these um, displays of, of royalty, you know, the, the crown and the bracelet of Saul, and um, thinks he's going to get in David's good graces by saying, hey, Saul's dead, so now you're king. Here are uh, your, your uh, crown and, and bracelet. Uh, of course, we know that he doesn't anticipate a couple things. He doesn't anticipate how uh, godly David is in terms of recognizing uh, what the death of God's anointed really was. So uh, he, he, mis he, under he doesn't appreciate that. And the second of all, he doesn't really understand that it was his kinsman that just captured David's family and burnt his city to the ground. Uh, I guess he didn't know that. So David wasn't real thrilled with uh, Amalekites um, in general, uh, especially someone that claimed to have killed Saul. We know that that was probably not true. Uh, so the Amalekite opportunist meets his demise there as well. And then in the latter part of 2 Samuel 1, we, we have this uh, song of lament uh, over the passing of Saul and Jonathan. And then chapter 2, David inquires of the Lord. So he's just heard that Saul is dead. The first thing he does is ask, what do I do next? He asks of God, what do I do? He says, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? The Lord says, go up. He said, where to? And the answer is Hebron. Uh, Hebron, um, you know, he just asked, where should I go? And that was the answer. As it turns out, it just so happens. Good things happen when you do what God says. Uh, Hebron was a really important city there. Um, it had um, been blessed by David in the past, so he had a good reputation there. It was 
probably the most prominent city in the whole um, Judah area there. And, um, and it was a city of, of David's own tribe there. So this was a great place to kind of get reestablished since Ziklag had been uh, burned to the ground. So then we are in chapter 2, verse 8. This is near where we left off last week. It says, But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army. So Saul had been, um, his military commander had been Abner. We've heard of him before. Uh, you'll, you'll pick up some questions right away as we head into this, but Abner says, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, brought him over to Mahanaim, made him king over Gilead, and so forth. So, so first of all, why didn't Abner die when all the kings and the sons died? You know, where was he? Um, and then second of all, Who's this Ishbosheth guy that was a son of Saul, but apparently was either too cowardly or too inept to actually be part of the battle next to his dad? So uh, automatically we get this concept that Abner is a military commander who also has a pretty good eye for politics, and he's also recognized, hey, I've got this this son of Saul who is still alive that I can basically use as my puppet to retain some control. And that's what's happening here. Um, verse 10, it says, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years in the house of Judah, followed David. So we've got the 12 tribes. One of them, Judah, has recognized David um, as leader. We'll see that in a moment. And the other ones are following uh, Abner's little pawn here, Ishbosheth. Verse 12 Abner, the son of Ner, the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And this is where we find out that there's going to be this battle by proxy, right? We saw this last week where uh, Joab, who is David's military commander, the counterpart to Abner, uh, they meet and they have this battle by proxy. Hey, I'm bringing 12 guys. You bring 12 guys. We're going to let them have it out together. So sure enough, all 24 of them get down there together, and they all kill each other. This is not wise. You know, probably, uh, you know, this is Mother's Day. If there were women around, they probably would have said, you know, this is stupid. <laughs> but, but the guys, you know, being guys, they did their thing. All 24 die. Well, then, as you might imagine, the battle expands. And so the battle expands, and uh, David pretty much gets the upper hand. Uh, they take after uh, Abner. Uh, one of Joab's br uh, brothers, Asahel, who apparently is very fast, he's speedy, uh, he is leading the pack. He's after Abner. And like the dog that eventually catches the car that he's chasing, now what do I do about it? He catches Abner. And Abner says, basically, back away. You don't want to do this. He ignores it. Abner winds up killing Asahel, Joab's brother. And ultimately, the battle happens. Abner says to Joab, hey, we just need to stop this. Let's just call a truce, so to speak. Joab agrees. But when it's all said and done, David's team wins to the tune of, what, 300 and... 360 to 19. They kind of ran up the score on them. Uh, 
So now we're in chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. That is definitely a good topic sentence, right? Uh, I've been told before when I start to tell a story, just give me the topic sentence. What, where are you heading with this? So great topic sentence. We're going to find over the next verses and really the next couple of chapters that this is all about the decline of Saul's house and the rise of David's house. Uh, pretty much says it all right there. Uh, and then we have this genealogy. And sons were born to David at Hebron and so forth. And when I read this, I said, well, that's interesting. And we've, uh, Dad's actually made a, a list um, of who was born to whom, and so forth. Um, because uh, these are, are uh, characters in the uh, stories that we're going to uh, come across. But I kind of glossed over this a little bit um, until, you know, I learned better. Um, it says, and there were sons born to David at Hebron. Now later we're going to hear about sons born to David um, later, but his firstborn was Amnon of Anna, Noam, and so forth. His second was of Abigail. And then we have other wives mentioned, Makkah, um, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and then uh, the son, uh, another of Haggith, and um, so forth, and all of these different wives. And what's happening here is that the writer is already kind of foreshadowing a little bit that although David is God's anointed, uh, we know that Samuel anointed him already, and although David has a reputation for doing great things, you know, he's David slain, slain his ten thousands, where Saul only slain his thousands, and so forth. We're getting a little foreshadowing here that David's reign is not going to be without some blemishes because we get this list of all of his different wives, including some that were not of the 12 tribes. So it harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, back when they were still still following the commands of Moses, and, and of course, they weren't always consistent, as we know. But listen to this from Deuteronomy 17, and it says, predicting exactly what would happen, when you come to the land that your Lord God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never turn that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So, uh, we will find out that some of these sons 
um, sure enough, um, become the source of great heartache for David and uh, his family. So, you know, already we're getting these hints, even though his reign hasn't even started in full, the narrator's already telling us this is not going to be um, an unstained hero. Uh, there's going to be, um, there's, there's other stuff I need to tell you, and he's given us a glimpse of that. Another great topic sentence, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. We know already that Abner is not bashful about trying to manipulate things to his um, advantage. And Ishbosheth, I guess, is realizing um, that Abner is a threat. Um, he's waking up to the fact that he's not really in charge like, you know, it's purported that he's in charge. So here we have this interesting little palace intrigue going on. Verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I'm not given into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? Now, you might think, like Shakespeare, that perhaps he's protesting a bit too much. In any event, he uses this as pretense to say, this is the thanks I get? You're accusing me of this? Well, fine. I'm going to transfer all of your kingdom over to David. Chances are, Abner, he, he probably knew of some of the prophecies. He probably knew that just like Samuel had anointed Saul, that Samuel had also anointed David back in the day. He already knew of David's popularity. He probably had a feeling that things were moving David's way so this was a really good excuse to jump ship, right? And that's what's going to happen. So, verse 12, And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? In other words, who's running the show here? I think you know, David. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And this is David saying, Good. I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Michael, of course, was David's first wife. So then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. This is sad. But her husband went with her, weeping all the way. <laughs> and Abner says, you know, go home. You know, the, just go home. Um, <laughs> poor guy. Um, verse 17. So Abner has, um, he's, he's made his proposal to 
uh, David. Uh, David says, yes, but I got to get my wife back. Um, David doesn't ask Abner, but asks Ishbosheth for Michael back. So now Ishbosheth is probably seeing the writing on the wall, right? Otherwise, if he had any power at all, he would have said, no, I'm not sending you know Michael back to you. Why would I do that? He doesn't do that. He he gives into that. So he already knows that that his time is is very short. So now it's all starting to happen. So Abner it says conferred with the elders of Israel, and so basically he's creating this coalition to explain why they need to now join up with David to fulfill his part of the bargain. And he does this interestingly by reminding them that they've still kind of got a thing historically for David. So that's verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people from Israel, from the hand of the Philistines, and from the hand of all their enemies. So... The people of Israel, the the 11 tribes, saved Judah, they were the ones who got spanked by the Philistines, right? And now they realize, yeah, we've still got Abner, but Saul's son Ishbosheth is not much to crow about. Um, Yeah, if David could be in charge of us, God's with him. David tends to win his battles where Saul tended to lose his you can see Abner reminding them that, hey, you know, maybe it's time. And so he develops this coalition so he can deliver um, these people over to David. And the, the final um, uh, pitch, so to speak, is verse 19, and Abner also spoke to Benjamin. So this was um, Saul's tribe, right? Uh, this was the 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 clan that would have been least likely to abdicate from Ishbosheth, Saul's heir. Um, so if Abner can convince the tribe of Benjamin, then it's pretty much a done deal, and that's exactly what happened. It says, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then, you know, this is really pretty interesting stuff, right? Uh, how many Jeopardy watchers do we have? Random question, right? Um, I don't know how old you get to be before you're a regular Jeopardy watcher, but I'm there, wherever that is. Um, so there was a clue the other day, something to the effect that, who said this? Uh, give me 60 pages of the Bible and I can make a great movie. Did y'all see that clue? And the answer was Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, and so this would, this would make a great movie. Um, I don't, maybe there's been a movie, but it, it hasn't been, maybe, I don't know. But uh, it is true, there's a lot of action here. Just then, verse 22, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. So Joab, the military commander, he's been out doing his thing, 
And he gets there and finds out what all has been going on. He says, but Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had been sent away and he had gone in peace. Verse 23, when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab that Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and has let him go. He's gone in peace. Joab, which this is a day of, you know, somewhat insolent military commanders, goes to David and basically says, I'm paraphrasing here, that was really stupid. He's just deceiving you. Um, don't believe a word he said and turns and leaves without David really even saying much. He goes after Abner. Now, he was just back from a successful raid where he had a lot of plunder. He was, you know, the testosterone was really flowing and his judgment was probably more than a little impaired by revenge, right? Because Abner had killed his brother, Asahel, the fast guy that was chasing him, remember? Well, verse 26, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David didn't know about it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So this is cowardly, right? This is two military commanders. So this is, this is no honor, right? This is no duel like you see, you know, romanticized one-on-one uh, -on -one with may the best man win sort of thing. This is a sucker punch is what this was took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, like, hey, come over here, i got to tell you something. And then he sucker punches him. I don't know. That just doesn't seem very honorable. Verse 28, Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. In other words, y'all, I had nothing to do with this. This was not authorized. And this is the most amazing curse I've come across and here's what he says. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without, number one, may your, may your descendants always have a discharge. Now, that's a medical term that I use. The word here is either discharge from your bowel or discharge from your genitals. Either place is not a great thing in case you want to know. May your lineage always have at least someone who is number two, leprous, which could be any bad skin disease that was probably infectious and contagious. Or number three, he who holds a spindle is one translation or he who has a crutch. So depending on which translation, it's either someone who is always lame and in that day and time probably couldn't support yourself or this reference to a spindle, which is a tool of weaving. In other words, may you always have somebody in your house that has to do woman's work, which back in the day, unfortunately, would have been a big install. Or number four, someone who's always involved in war or on the losing end of the war, in fact, or someone who is always suspect of famine. 
someone who lacks bread. That's a bad curse put on you by someone who has been anointed by God and is known to have God's favor. So when you hear that curse come from David's lips, that can't, that can't be good, right? Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. In other words, that you didn't have a great death. And all the people wept again over him. And then the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. And he said, No, uh, God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. In other words, I'm in full mourning mode. Um, I'm not going to eat. So they followed suit, and all the people took notice of it. It pleased them as everything that the king did pleased the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. So, I'm not doubting that David meant what he said about Abner, but there appear to be a couple of other levels to this big display, which arguably was as as big a demonstration as what happened with Saul and Jonathan. I mean, this was a, a big deal. So, number one, I think it was David basically showing respect to a fellow military commander who had been uh, sucker punched by someone under David's command. So he definitely wanted to... Um, to demonstrate that he had nothing to do with it, that he didn't think it was honorable, that um, there was some sort of mutual respect going on here. But then also, there's kind of making lemonade out of this deal as he still is uh, wanting to gather up this contingency of people, uh, these other 11 tribes who have just been convinced by Abner to join David. Think about it from their standpoint. Abner is their point person, right? Abner's the one that's created the coalition and is going to usher them into David's good graces. And now someone from David's household, so to speak, under David's command, has killed Abner. You got to think they were uneasy, to say the least. Like, where does this put us? Does this mean the deal is off? What does this mean? So David, having some wisdom here, um, and you know, 
in a way, politics gets a bad reputation. Much of it deserved, no doubt. But if you're going to be in a position like this, you're stupid if you don't make good decisions because the essence of politics is getting people to follow you, right? Which you can, you can lead by example, you can motivate them, you know, Churchill's famous speeches, you know, to, to unify England when it was really being, um, you know, uh, feeling the weight of the war and so forth. Uh, so leadership matters, and David is showing great leadership here by, by, in essence, reassuring all these other people that he is, that he and Abner were still good, right? Um, and so if he's overdoing it a little bit, there was there was a reason for that. There was a reason for that uh, because if you think about it, you got to have a big event because. It, it's not going to show up on Facebook in a few minutes. It's going to have to filter out. So you got to you got to make a big display. You got to show as as much as you can to as many people that are there in hopes that the message gets back to the target audience. So that's what's been going on here. All right, let's touch on chapter 4. When Ishbosheth Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed, right? That's just what I was saying. They hear Abner has fallen, and now they're worried. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. Now, uh, think about this. You've got a weak king, so to speak, in Ishbosheth, and Abner is already starting to jump ship, right? So, uh, what is it, leadership abhors a vacuum or whatever. So you've got these two military commanders. They've each got their own little commando units, and they've been just raiding and pillaging because Abner's not around to tell them what to do, and the king at home is weak. Look what they do. They come back from raiding. Skip down to verse 5. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. What's with this stomach thing? That's just not cool. <laughs> then they escaped. And then, this sounds, I think there may have been some translation like cut and paste or something here. But then they came into the house, and they lay in his bedroom, they struck him. They put him to death and they beheaded him. So maybe they, maybe they stuck him in the stomach, went out, and then they said, maybe we ought to go finish him off. So then they come back and finish him off. I'm not exactly sure how that went. But in any event, um, he's dead. And they do just like this Amalekite opportunist did that we saw. They took his head, went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered them, 
as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when he told me, when one told me, behold, Saul was dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which, though, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? <laughs> they, are, they are not getting uh, what they think they're or what they thought they were getting. Verse 12, And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their heads and feet, and hanged them, I'm sorry, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So, the narrator is wrapping things up. The last officials of Saul's reign are gone. They're gone. Now, I skipped over one verse, which I'll just mention for reference because it may come up later. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is chapter 4, 4. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So almost all of Saul's descendants have fallen typically by the sword. And we do have this one little remnant here of Saul's, I mean, of um, yeah, Saul's grandson, um, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Uh, that we may run into down the road. A little part of verse five, uh, chapter 5, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And that's where they're going to coalesce around David, and that's where we'll pick up next week. All right. You got the movie in your head? <laughs> that's a lot, right? It's a lot. But it's, it's, a, it's a great account, and... Um, you know, I think one of the reasons I always am struck by the, the, the truth of the Bible is that uh, contrary to what people might think if they don't really read it, um, we don't have flawless heroes, right? We've got deeply flawed people that only by God's grace can they do what they need to do. And of course, uh, the same is true uh, of all of us. We can only do what God's grace allows us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that... Uh, this history uh, that you've given us um, of how David came and so forth is, um, is in essence part of our history as well. The way that we get to see uh, David's kingdom come to bear and, and how it reminds us that you're sovereign and, and just like you brought uh, David uh, to the pinnacle uh, that the same is going to happen for Jesus and we are putting our faith in him. And in his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.